word with you again this morning. And I appreciate whoever picked the hymns out this morning, Pastor Rick, them picking my favorite one before I preached. That's always nice when somebody picks out your favorite hymn right before you preach. I love that hymn, that contemporary hymn that God's given us. One of my favorite things in that is when the hymn writer emphasizes from the grave he rose. He's not dead. We serve a risen Savior who's alive and sits on his throne loving his people and doing them good. There's nothing greater more to sing about than that. I ask you to open your Bibles with me this morning to the book of Hebrews. The book of Hebrews What I'm going to do this morning, though I don't know what the future holds, I have been preaching a series out of the book of Hebrews in Grand Rapids, out of actually Hebrews chapter 11, and the sermon you're going to get this morning is the first in that series, which actually lays out the context for chapter 11. So we're going to begin to look at that this morning. And I don't know if, it, if for any reason I am back here in the future, you'll probably hear more in that series, I would venture to say. Um, but God willing, we're going to at least do this this morning, and go to, we'll be looking in particular at chapter 10, verses 32 through 39, which we'll read in just a moment. But before we do that, let's again ask God to bless us as we open his word together. Father, we again thank you for your love And the love you've shown us by sending your son to die and rise from the dead, that we might have life. And we do echo the hymn writer, no power of hell, no scheme of man can ever pluck us from his hand. We ask this morning now as we come to hear your word Father, that you'd help us to come ready to hear. Give us ears to hear. Give us eyes to see. Help your people to understand the things that are preached, to be able to apply them to themselves, that they might be more faithful servants of yours. Help me as I speak your word to speak it clearly, to speak it plainly. Might you be glorified through it. Your people encouraged today, we ask and pray. In Jesus' name, amen. Hebrews chapter 10, verses 32 through 39. Hear the word of God. But remember the former days when after being enlightened, you endured a great conflict of sufferings, partly by being made a public spectacle through reproaches and tribulations, and partly by becoming sharers with those who were so treated. For you showed sympathy to the prisoners and accepted joyfully the seizure of your property, knowing you have for yourselves a better possession and a lasting one. Therefore, do not throw away your confidence, which has a great reward, for you have need of endurance, so that when you have done the will of God, you may receive what was promised." 
For yet in a very little while, he who is coming will come and will not delay. But my righteous one shall live by faith. And if he shrinks back, my soul has no pleasure in him. But we are not of those who shrink back of destruction, but of those who have faith to the persevering of the soul. Sometimes we as God's people struggle with our faith. We'll ask ourselves even questions like, is God's word really true? Is God real? Is Christ really coming again and will the wicked be judged? We struggle with these these thoughts and others like them. And sometimes these struggles can become very intense and very serious. As we come today to look at the context of Hebrews 11, a very familiar portion of Scripture to most of us, we want to see exactly what, who I believe the Apostle Paul, who I believe wrote this book, even though there's no confirmation to that end, was writing to the Hebrew Christians. Why was he writing what he was writing? What is it that's going to prompt the Apostle Paul to write Hebrews chapter 11? Is it just because he just thought, well, it's time we just need a, we need a little dissertation on faith, so we'll just go into the faith? Or was there something going on with these people he's addressing that prompted him to write chapter 11? To go on, as, as we'll see, Lord willing, or as we may see, Lord willing, in the future, to go on and define what biblical faith is, and then to give this whole litany of examples. Why, why would he do that? Well, one of the things we're going to see this morning is that the, history, the Hebrew Christians were struggling. They were struggling with their faith. And actually, the whole book of Hebrews, if we were had time this morning to go back and to look at what the book has to say, would show us that. We'd go all the way back, as my wife and I were even talking this morning, all the way back to chapter 1, where the apostle reminds the Hebrew Christians of our Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, and it's through him that God had spoken in these final days. If we went to chapter 6, verses 4 through 6, we would find there the apostle warning the Hebrew Christians about apostatizing and how serious that is. If we look even earlier at the six verses that come before the verses we just read, we see the apostle warning about continuing to sin willfully after receiving the gospel and how judgment awaits those who do so. So what is he doing? What is he wanting to do here? The apostle wants to come and he wants to encourage these people and to help them. They're struggling. They're struggling. And so he does two things as he comes to talk to the people, to address the people here in Hebrews, verses 32 through 39. What he does, first of all, is he goes back in verses 32 through 34 to show them and remind them 
of what I'm calling their previous love. What did the Hebrews at one point believe and how did they act? Well, the apostle tells us here and tells them that they need to remember. They need to remember. And what does he want them to remember? He wants them to remember how they acted after they were first Christians. What what did they do? What happened to them after they first believed, after they first became Christians? And also, how did they respond to what happened after they, excuse me, how did they respond to what happened to them? So he wants to remind them, first of all, okay, do you remember? And he's going to point out three things to them. He's going to first point out to them and remind them of their sufferings. Then he's going to remind them of their response to those sufferings. And lastly, he's going to remind them of their hope that they had during those sufferings. So those three things, initially, as he looks at their previous love, and then he's going to go on, if we get that far, Lord willing, to show them their present life. That's where they were, but where are they now? So first of all, where were they? In verses 32 to 34, the apostle goes back and he says to them again, remember, with these people, that that was not all that they lost. Or I should say, at least all they experienced. Probably be a better way to say it. That's not all they experienced. Know what else he says there in verse 34? For you showed sympathy to the prisoners. They not only suffered personal persecution, they entered in with others who did. They probably visited those who were in prison, helped them, and provided for their needs. At even the risk 
to their own lives. Because what would happen? What would happen if these people had been arrested, thrown in prison, and I showed up to give them some food and encouragement? What am I at the risk of exposing myself as being a Christian also, right? And being thrown in there right along with them. So in doing this, they were exposing themselves to risk. I'd like to point out something that's very interesting. Turn with me quickly. Keep your fingers here. But turn with me back to the Gospels to see something, Gospel of Matthew, to see something that our Savior said that's related to this and to their behavior here. And we'll see more as we go this morning how this is very significant. Matthew 25, verses 31 and following The Lord is talking about the final judgment. And he's talking about the goats and the sheep. And he gives us the characteristics of the goats and the characteristics of the sheep. And as the Savior will pick up in verse 34, is talking about this and how he's going to separate one from the other in the final day. Then the king will say to those on his right, Come you who are blessed of my father. Inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. For I was hungry, and you gave me something to eat. I was thirsty, and you gave me something to drink. I was a stranger, and you invited me in. Naked, and you clothed me. I was sick, and you visited me. And look at this phrase. I was in prison. And you came to me. The righteous will answer him, Lord, when did we see you hungry and feed you, or thirsty and give you something to drink? And when did we see you a stranger and invite you in, or naked and clothe you? And when did we see you sick or in prison and come to you? The king will answer and say to them, Truly I say to you, to the extent that you did it to one of these brothers of mine, even the least of them. You did it to me. Now, what was Jesus saying there? And in particular, we want to take note of his reference to being visited while in prison. Jesus was saying that those who had visited his people while they were in prison, those who had encouraged them, those who had met their needs, had done it to who? It was just like doing it to him. And he said, these are characteristics of my people. This is what my people are like. So we see here the sufferings that these people went through. They experienced tribulations. They experienced hardship. They lost everything they had. And not only that, they associated with others who were also being persecuted for the gospel, and were not afraid to do so. The apostle reminds them of this. And what's he wanting them to do? He's saying, now, wait a minute. You went through all this, and you're ready to throw the towel in now? No. 
As a matter of fact, he goes on in the first part of 34, and he notes their, their response to what happened to them. How did they respond to that? Did they respond with anger and bitterness? Did they respond with complaining? No, look what he says there. For you showed sympathy to the prisoners and accepted joyfully the seizure of your property. They were a content and joyful people. Now, you may say, wow, maybe they were crazy. They lost everything they had. They were beaten, publicly ridiculed. And these people are happy? They're joyful people? They're a content people? How could that be? How in the world was that possible? Well, look what he says there at the end of of verse 34. Their hope. What was their hope in? Was it in the things of this world? Was it in the nice house that they had? That wouldn't have been a car in the driveway, but probably the nice cart with a horse on it. And whatever else they possessed? Was that what it was all about to these people? No, the apostle says, no, that's not what it was all about. Knowing that you have for yourselves a better possession, a lasting one. These people, in one sense, the things of this world did not matter to them. That was not what was most important to them. That was not what they were holding on to. What were they holding on to? The promise that Christ was coming again. The promise that he was coming to take his people, to live with him for them forever, to judge the wicked, to make a new heaven and a new earth in which they would dwell with him. That's what their hope was in. And it was a small thing to them at that time to lose their possessions. Well, what does it matter? These aren't any good to us anyway. We're not going to have them permanently. We're not going to have them forever. They were a joyful people. That's how you were, the apostle says. But there's a problem, sadly. That's not where they are presently as we come to the passage. That's not where they are right now. Where are they? Well, in verses 35 to 39, that's where the apostle addresses them. And he looks here again at three things. In doing and talking to them about where they are presently, first of all, we want to see their dangerous position in verse 35. Then we'll look at a delicate rebuke that he gives to the people in verses 36 and 37. And then a decisive declaration that he makes in verses 38 and 39. So first of all, what was their dangerous position? Something now had changed with these people. They were no longer the joyful people that they were. They were no longer joyfully accepting 
what was happening to them. They had become weary of the persecution that they were enduring. They'd become tired. They began to say, where is the Lord? You said, Paul, that the Lord was coming back. Where is he? We've been through all this. Where is he? Isn't he coming? Are you sure? Maybe, Paul. I hope you, brethren, don't mind if I take my jacket off. I'm getting a little too warm. I hope that's okay. Uh, Where are you? Lord, what's going on here? Paul, you said that this is what God has promised us, but we don't see him. We've lost everything we've had. We've been beaten. We've been mocked. Maybe we should just go back to our Judaism. Maybe that's what we need to do. Just go back to that, then the Jews will leave us alone, and we won't have any more worries. Maybe that's what we should do. And it's interesting to note in the few chapters previous, including chapter 10, what is what has the apostle done? He's gone through the whole sacrificial system and told us how Christ has fulfilled that and how that's no longer applicable. Almost wonder if he's not anticipating their desire to return to the old system. So where are they now? They, they're about to cast off their faith. They're about to throw in the towel and say, I'm done. And he employs them here. Don't throw your confidence out the window. Don't stop believing in Christ. That's the worst thing you could do right now. The absolutely worst thing you could do. And he comes then to verses 36 and 37 to give them a rebuke. And he's gentle in his rebuke here, but he's clear and he's plain in what he says. He tells them that they need to endure. And the apostle understands what they're going through. I mean, who who better than the apostle Paul knows? Who'd been stoned and dragged out to left for dead? Among the many other things he'd gone under, he knew what they had been through. He knew what it was like to be beaten, to be mocked, to lose everything you had. He knew. He understood. He sympathized with them. He knew it had been very hard for them. Yet he encourages them here to endure and to remind them, secondly here, of the promises, again, that God has made. If they continue to follow God and don't give up, they will receive what he's promised. And you notice that he says here, for in a very little while, in verse 37, he who is coming will come and will not delay. He reminds them what? Christ is coming. Oh, yes, he's coming. And he's going to come quickly. And you need to be ready. Paul told the Galatians something similar in Galatians 6, chapter 6, excuse me, verse 9, when he said, let us not lose heart in doing good, for in due time we will reap 
if we don't grow weary. We need to continue. You need to continue, is what the Apostle Paul told them. You need to endure. You can't give up. Well, then Paul goes on to give them, to make, excuse me, a decisive declaration. After encouraging them in verses 36 and 37, he goes on to say in verse 38, but my righteous one shall live by faith. Paul tells them that God's people live by faith. Each day they must seek to love God and live for him. Yes, there will be struggles, but they must not give up. Some days are going to be really hard. Some days are going to be very, very hard. But we must not give up. We must continue. Says the apostle, you must continue. And he ends verse 38 with an interesting phrase where he tells them, if you don't, If you shrink back, God will have no pleasure in you. If you stop, if you throw in the towel now, you will bring God's wrath down on you. You must not do that. You can't do that. So he reminds them here, that God's people must live by faith and reminds them that if they don't and they stop, God will have no pleasure in them. Then in verse 39, he comes to this interesting resolution or conclusion, however you want to say it. It's a very interesting statement. After all that he said, look what the apostle does here. He comes to them, And he makes a statement saying that we're not of those who shrink back to destruction. Now, wait a minute, Paul. You just warned them not to shrink back. And now you're saying we're not, you and us, you and I are not of those who shrink back. What do you mean? What are you saying, Paul? What is he declaring here? And why could he say, why would he include the Hebrew Christians with himself in saying, we are not of those who shrink back? Well, you remember what the apostle pointed out just a few verses earlier? How had they responded when they were first converted? Were those signs of being God's people or no? They were. Christ himself said it, as we saw in the Gospels. The apostle could confidently say here, no, that's not you. You're not of those who shrink back. That's not who you are. I've seen you. I know what you did and what you have done for the sake of the gospel. We're not of those who shrink back. Not you, not me. We're not going to shrink back. He was confident that they had endured and would endure. 
because they had truly and did truly love God. What they now needed to do was to remember those things. How they had responded to persecution earlier and what God had promised them. And what I'd like to do this morning is for us to take three very simple but very clear lessons out of what the apostle was doing here as he sets the table to begin to talk to them about faith. And what is biblical faith and examples of men who showed it, men and women who showed it? But three, three lessons here. And one is for us to be reminded again here, brethren, as he reminded these brethren here, we've not been called to a life of ease. Jesus did not promise us when we began to follow him that we were going to be wealthy, that we were going to be healthy, that our families would turn out just the way we want them to, that the church would go on and never have any problems, that we would live in a country that would continue to uphold the Christian faith. He never promised any of those things, ever. As a matter of fact, you know what he did promise us? And he does require of us to daily take up a cross and follow him. He's not promised us a life of ease. As a matter of fact, he's told us it's going to be difficult. Ask Job what he thinks. Would you like to talk to Job? He might be able to enlighten us a little bit. And we could go on and on with the list, could we not? God has not promised us, brethren, a life of ease. And sometimes when difficult things come our way, and God has blessed us, let me just say, brethren, in the history of the church, God has blessed us in ways that people couldn't even imagine. In a country like ours, with a level of living that we have, there are people in the world today and historically in the church who who couldn't even imagine where we are. So let me just say that to begin with. But, brethren, when hard things come our way, when tough things, when bad things, really bad things, really hard things come our way, what do we do? Do we get disillusioned? Do we begin to say, like these people were doing, wait a minute, maybe this Christianity business is, isn't really what it's all cracked up to be. Maybe this, you know, maybe, you know, look at this. You know, the church is falling apart. The thing, everything's going to the dogs here. Right? Is there, where is Christ in his church? Isn't he oversee his church? He says he does. Where is he? My family's going to the dogs. What's happening? Lord, I've, I've been following you faithfully. Look at my kids. They're going every direction, but the way they should be. What's happening? Are we going to throw in the towel now? 
Are we going to say, I might as well just forget it? I'm done with this? No. We can't do that. We can't do that, brethren. We can't become disillusioned when hard things come our way. For one, Jesus told us that was going to happen. He said, you're going to have some tough, tough things happen. There's going to be hard things. You're going to be tested to the nth degree. Be found faithful. Stay the course. And Paul is telling the Hebrews here, you need to stay the course. Nothing that's happened to you is surprising. It's what Christ said would come. But Paul doesn't simply just kind of leave it that way. You notice again the two things as we were looking at this that we pointed out. You know, first of all, he gives us one of the remedies for these kind of struggles that come upon us when hard things come. And it's interesting that one of the remedies is to go back and remember what it was like when we were first converted. He takes these people back to when they first became Christians. Why did he do that? How, how did they respond? When they became Christians, were they all excited about Christ and what he had done for them? Yep. Were they willing to endure whatever came their way? Yes. He wanted them to go back and remember, this is who you are. This is who you became. And this is who you still are. You are still God's people. Remember how excited you were and what you were willing to endure for the gospel when you first became a Christian? Don't forget that, because that's still who you are. You need to continue to be that way. You need to keep being that way. Don't stop. Don't stop now. One thing that can often help us, brethren, when we deal with hard things that come our way is to remember what Christ did for us when we were converted and how we responded. And remember, even since then, what he has done for us and how he has blessed us in so many ways. And I don't believe there's a person here who loves the Lord, who couldn't give me a list longer than his arm of all the good things God has done for them. If they sat and seriously thought about it and began to write that list, the pen would run out of ink because of all the good things he's done for us. Can we give up on a God like that? Are we going to throw in the towel? Are we going to say, you know, I've had enough, this is enough? And it becomes really hard when it touches our families in the church and the people we love. That's when the rubber begins to meet the road. And Jesus begins to say to us, okay, are you mine or not? Do you love me or do you not love me? Where is your heart? And that's what the apostle was addressing him. And that's when we become... when. We're tempted to become, brethren, this allusion to the point of throwing in the towel to remind ourselves of what Christ has done for us. 
remind ourselves of what he's done for us. And there's not one of us who could sit here and say we've done as much for him as he's done for us. There's no way we could ever say that. He's done more for us than we will ever do for him. But we need to remind ourselves of that, to help, to help us not give up. And then the second thing the apostle does, and finally, is he reminds them again of the promises that God has given And we need to remind ourselves, brethren, when we begin to get disillusioned, when we begin to wonder, where is the Lord? Has he left us? Is to remember his promises. What has he promised us as his people? What has he said he will do? Has he said he will come again? He certainly has. And he is coming again. And there is no question about it. As sure as we're sitting here, Christ will come again. And he is going to come and judge men. He will vindicate his people. He will judge the wicked. And will take his people to be with him. And create for them a new heaven and a new earth in which they will dwell with him forever. He has promised that. And those are the promises that those dear people, those Hebrews, held on to initially when they were willing to go through all that persecution. Are we holding on to those promises this morning? Are we or have we let the things of this world kind of creep in and then become more important And maybe even be used to help disillusion us because things aren't going exactly the way we would like them to. We have to remember the promises of God. Peter, when he was writing his second letter, was addressing that to his readers. They apparently were having some of the similar problems as the Hebrew Christians were in the letter that Paul wrote to them. When he wrote in 2 Peter 3, 8 and 9, but do not let this one fact escape your notice, beloved, that with the Lord one day is like a thousand years, and a thousand years like one day. The Lord is not slow about his promise, as some count slowness, but is patient toward you, not wishing for any to perish, but for all to come to repentance. Peter answers a couple of questions there for us. One, why is it taking the Lord so long? What's happening? Well, for number one, um, from God's perspective, it's only been a day or two since the Lord left. So really, it's not all been all that long. With him, a thousand years are like a day, and a day is like a thousand years. It's not been that long at all. And so Peter says, number one, God is not really slow in fulfilling his promise. But he said there's also something else. God has those he's going to bring into his kingdom. And part of the reason he has not come yet is they're not all in. 
And so he has a few more to bring in yet, brethren. And kind of a side note, I didn't put this in my notes, but I'll throw this in for free. We should pray to that end, that God will bring all those in. Because once they're in, guess what? He's coming back. And he will be here once they're all in. But we need to remind ourselves when we get disillusioned, wait a minute. Christ said he's coming and he is coming. He is going to judge the wicked. He is going to vindicate his people. And they're going to be with him forever. In a place that if they can't even get their minds around, it's going to be so wonderful. To be with him in a place without sin and misery, I don't know if we can even think in those terms, brethren. I'm not sure we can, but it's going to be. May God help us as his people not to become easily disillusioned. Bad things are going to happen, brethren. This is a sin-cursed world. And we are not, because we're God's people, in some way insulated from that. We are going to have tough things. We are going to have to take up our crosses someday and do some very hard things, or some hard things are going to come upon us. And when that happens, may we remind ourselves what great things God has done for us and what great things he's going to do for us in his mercy and loving kindness. Let's pray together.